Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That is uh, Pink and White from the brand new Frank Ocean CD or album or whatever we call digital releases these days. That's called Blonde. We're going to be discussing that today on the nose, but first of all, I should say that we're live from the beautiful Ivoryton Playhouse. How about a big hand from this uh, terrific audience we got here? Frank Ocean is very popular in Ivoryton, so they asked us to talk about him. Um, I have to just tell a quick story before I even introduce the panel, which is that so. I don't know, like quite a few years ago, it was either 2003 or 2004, we were producing a, an original musical down here, Steve Metcalf and Larry Bloom and I, uh, and I was thinking about it driving down today. I just have one little observation about it, which is that, you know, in general, when we go to performances in Connecticut, I think most of us have decided that standing ovations are kind of BS, right? Like, because like everything gets a standing ovation in Connecticut. <laughs> and part of it is because we're kind of grateful that people are, whoever is performing, it's like, oh, you didn't go straight to Boston. You stay, you were here in Connecticut. Yay. You know, so every, a lot of things get standing ovations. And I occasionally find myself sitting in an audience for something I don't really want to give a standing ovation to <coughs> Anastasia. Uh, and, but, you know, sort of resenting the fact that you have to stand up. Um, but so I think that there's sort of BS. But then when I think about like this musical that we did here, and every night this place would be full, and there'd be a standing ovation. So that was a real one, right? <laughs> like if you're getting the standing ovation, no, no, that's not the Connecticut effect. That's not. That's a real standing ovation. That's an earned standing ovation. And yes, I do realize the total hypocrisy and insanity of that. But we have this human resources director at Public Radio who says, your show's good? How do we know that? And I always say, well, because we get standing ovations. You just can't see it because it's radio. Um, all right, so uh, let me tell you who's here today. We're excited. This is our, The Nose, our weekly uh, cultural roundtable. James Hanley is sitting uh, right next to me here. He's the co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, 
really pretty much the best place in Connecticut to go see a movie, uh, just in terms of the equipment and the uh, care to detail. Uh, Mercy Quay is with us, Director of Communications for the New Haven Public Schools and, and organizer of the Narrative Project, and Kate Russian, poet and writer who has taught uh, in the Amistad Freedom Trail Project. We are going to talk a little bit later about a movie that seemed to be steaming its way towards Oscar dominance and all kinds of other dominance only to uh, be significantly derailed when its very single-minded creator, the man who wrote, uh, directed, uh, and starred in it, uh, is uh, now embroiled in a scandal from his past. And if there's time, and there will be time, we'll talk briefly about the uh, problem, if that's the right word, of burkinis uh, in France. You all know what burkinis are. So yes, of course, France's slogan, liberté, égalité, Burkini Day, uh, apparently not. So we're going to begin with Frank Ocean. Um, I'll just sort of just say he's 28 years old, uh, came out of um, a kind of uh, what progressive hip-hop group, uh, broke away, uh, put out a very beautiful, stirring, moody uh, album called Channel Orange about four years ago. Uh, it was the kind of album that made you wonder where he would go next. To me, it was like if Stevie Wonder had stopped at Music of My Mind and taken a turn in a particular direction and been gay, um, you, you would have done Channel Orange. He would have done Ch Channel Orange, something very much like it. So um, everybody's been waiting. And these days, these days, Mercy, one thing that people don't do is tell you when anything's coming out, right? They tell you something might be coming out starting in like maybe 2014. Right, so th for this, what we're seeing, if we're gonna, you know, uh, compare it to Beyonce, is Beyonce didn't, she actually doesn't ever tell anyone when anything is coming out. She just drops something on you, and everyone's excited because everyone will buy into it because it's Queen Bee, and that's what you do. Frank, on the other hand, uh, told everyone several times, this is coming out on this exact date, and then he defied that deadline, and then said, okay, well, this is the date, and then defied that deadline, until eventually we were all surprised this weekend when he uh, dropped this album, and uh, to at least my surprise, I was not as, um, I'll say, sold uh, with this album drop as I was with Lemonade or Beyonce's album drop. So, I mean, you didn't, you didn't give me the lead-in I was looking for, because... What was it, the lead-in you were looking for? I'll, I'll do it. I'll some, it well, something that I could cut you off and say, well, Colin, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best album drop of all time. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I think this is just about the best album drop of all time, Mercy. <laughs> well... All right. No, I'll it's too it late. There, the, the moment's gone. So, um, as we were emailing back and forth, as we tend to do about this, uh, James, I think, what did you call uh, Frank Ocean? Fascinating and provocative? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, um, it, it's just that he is so different. Um, I, I find, the, you know, the sort of emotional con connection with what he does as being something that is really akin to listening to a poet who is um, really unpredictable. And I think going to this thing about sort of, you know, the unpredictability of his release and so on, uh, I think that there is a... Um, it, 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 it's kind of like a demonstration of his independence from the business side of it, really, that the business side of recorded music, of course, has been changing very drastically and came from a position where there was a failure to really reconstitute the business for digital uh, when, when, when digital sound really took over. But um, I like the fact that he is so focused on his own expressions that um, it makes it 
almost difficult, really, to listen to at first, because I found when I first started listening to it, I was really sort of emotionally affected, but not really knowing why. And I think that I tried to think of other artists. Um, I mean, there, there are other artists who have sort of vaguely similar things. I mean, I, I can think of sometimes I felt that way about Prince, but Frank Ocean is something different to me and uh, fascinates me. His, his, um, all of his uh, cadences of his voice, the emotional connection that that creates, and the words that he's using, um, it, it's, it's something that is stimulating to me and fascinating, but also hard to get to, which I kind of like. Well, since you said poet, we will be playing some more cuts from the album just uh, for people who need more of a taste to understand what we're talking about. But Kate, since you said poet, do you identify with Frank Ocean? Do you identify him as a poet? You know, I'm inspired by him. I am. I'm, I'm inspired by the way he puts words together. I'm inspired the way by the way he delivers the words. Um, and I'm inspired by his, his independence and his willingness and ability to, I won't even say go against the gangster image. He's not paying any attention to it at all. And I'm fascinated by the fact that he can, he's been able to connect with audiences and also uh, top people in the business as a young black man uh, talking about his life and asking questions uh, about the direction he wants to go in, being introspective. Right. This is a very introspective album, as was Channel Orange, although Channel Orange seemed to be a little bit more focused on storytelling, maybe even telling stories that weren't exactly Frank Ocean's, almost like a little collection of short stories. Um, this one seems to be a much more moody and at times lugubrious uh, album. Uh, it's not a get up and dance album, as you'll see as we go along here. In fact, let's play uh, a little uh, section. This happens to be right now my favorite cut from the album. It's called Skyline 2. Spoken words that you hear, that hear there are by Kendrick Lamar, whose entire job is to say smoke and haze. Uh, that's about it. That's all Kendrick really gets to do uh, uh, on that particular cut. Um, so, uh, first of all, I want to talk more about the music here, but James, you alluded to this, and actually it's the lead story in the business section of the Times today, uh, the fact that, uh, that Frank Ocean uh, has put out this album pretty much for himself and on his own and in his own particular way while bypassing his... Um, previous uh, label, which is Def Jam, which is in turn owned by, I think, Universal or some big, huge company. And he gave them 
what I regard as this big fat white elephant, this kind of visual uh, album called Endless. It's called Endless, right? Endless. Yeah, Endless, yes. yeah. yeah right. um, And he sort of said, here, there, there, my contract's over, now I'm going to do this thing. And so all, all in the space of just a few days, he released this visual thing uh, and put out a magazine called Boys Don't Cry, uh, which is not available in Ivoryton or anywhere else in Connecticut, as far as I can tell, uh, and then put out this album. But this is, we're seeing a lot more of this, right? I mean, if you want to do something that's explicitly you and not have to explain what you're doing to anybody else, uh, then, you know, do it as much as possible on your own. Right. I, I mean, I think that this is sort of like where um, the independence of artists is going, and the, um, I mean, it has its parallels in all sorts of areas where digital processing of signals and pictures and everything, it gives people a chance to actually manage what they're doing with art and it does it at a low cost in the sense that you don't need a massive studio, that you don't need to actually play into these massive corporations that have in, in the past have distributed music. And I think that um, in, in, a, in his case, he's kind of almost playing a cat and mouse game with these people that you know that they he has a contract certainly or he had a contract and he's also aware that there are limitations to that and i sort of think of the um it, there's a kind of parallel to me about uh, the emergence of uh, themes in art like surrealism for example which uh, flies in the face of what has gone before and formal art and taking people to places where they're uncomfortable um, that, that, for instance, one of the one of the fascinating things is how he's come out as being gay and how he's been able to describe himself, and and do it in subtle but direct ways, and it, his it, it to me it comes across in his voice the passion in his voice, and he's going to do that, and that's clearly what he's focused on, and he's not going to be driven by the commercial needs, mm -hmm. and I mean that's not to completely throw out people who work within the commercial system, but I think that when you're taking music and poetry and art generally in new directions, you've got to break out of that formality and you've got to say, well, I, yes, I want to earn a living, obviously, but at the same time, I'm not going to do it by the rules that are forced by lawyers and bankers and people who are saying, this is the way it has to be done. And I think he's, he's one of those, he, he just seems to have an incredible self-confidence about doing exactly that. You know, uh, Mercy, though, one thing that's happened over the last couple of years is we have these, this fabulous group of African-American uh, R&B auteurs and hip-hop auteurs, and one after another, they've put out these albums that often take a really long time uh, to create, whether it's Maxwell's uh, most recent release or D'Angelo, you know, goes like 14 years and gets arrested and goes into rehab and changes his whole life all over about six times before he releases something. But Kendrick Lamar, who didn't wait quite as long, uh, and Beyonce's Lemonade, and all of these kind of share the quality of being almost kind of self-defined masterworks, right? There's a, a sense, this is this huge statement, this is my Sgt. Pepper, this is my, you know, uh, what, whatever benchmark or whatever Marvin Gaye benchmark you, you want to choose, this is this huge statement I'm making. And so, like, all of them did this in the last 18 months, and you're sort of wondering, do, 
can they just go back to making albums? I'd be okay if they could just make an album now. You know, they didn't really feel like it had to be this thing that put the world on its ear. I mean, yeah, and then you're also adding the fact that on these albums, they have these grand interludes with spoken word and yeah. the visual album. I think something that Kate will even attest to is the fact that I think something that's pretty integral to black culture is spoken word and poetry mm -hmm. in that way. And so that's, I mean, these, that's, at least for me, uh, it feels like that's how these uh, artists are emoting <laughs> and we're mm -hmm. sort of getting the raw end of it, right? Maxwell, uh, was it Max D'Angelo went, to rehab, got arrested, came back, and then we got the end of that, which is the masterpiece of, I just called it a masterpiece, and I can't even remember the album's name. Black Messiah. There it is. <laughs> um, and I don't know that they can that the old white guy had to tell her it was Black Messiah? <laughs> I'm very proud of myself right now. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know if we can go back to a, a straight album release, and what does that even look like anymore? Um, you know, last time Kate and I were on the same panel together, Lemonade came out, mm -hmm. and I think my opening remarks were that Beyonce has offered us the blueprint of a visual album. Now I'm not sure that that's the case, right? Uh, Kendrick does the same. And even if it's not an entire visual album, he'll take a five-minute song and make a 20-minute video. And I, I mean, I am happy that that's what we're getting. I'm happy that these artists are able to sort of take claim of their work and sort of um, break away and liberate themselves from their labels. Um, that's why you have uh, apps like Tidal, right, that was essentially a FUBU kind of venture, for us, by us kind of venture. Uh, a group of artists came together and said, well, you know, we're going to take labels out of the equation altogether. And so I'm really happy that artists are able, especially black artists, are able to liberate themselves from, this might be harsh, the sharecropping uh, nature of labels. I just want to say that Tidal, which is a music streaming service that is partly uh, owned, I believe, by uh, Beyonce's husband, yep. Mr. Mr. Z. So I got Tidal when we were doing that the, sh the show about Beyonce because it was the only way you could initially get Lemonade. Um, and so now I have Tidal, and I kept Tidal, and I'm now paying for it, and my free trial is over, and I didn't stop paying for it because I really like it, except that it's no use to me whatsoever with Frank Ocean because he's done a completely different thing where the only place you can get it is on Apple. And although I applaud the throwing off of the sharecroppers' yoke, uh, they're not making it easy for us either with all this. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely not a buyer's market. It's an artist's market, and um, I think... The only advice that I have to any consumer is uh, stock up on your your subscriptions because you at this point need Tidal and Spotify and Pandora and <laughs> Apple Music and maybe share. The, I'm not going to say what I'm about to say, but if I do, choose it on your own, right? Maybe share some passwords and then every time a new artist comes out with an album, you have access to it. Um. Kate, one thing that I, I want to make sure we don't fail to talk a little bit about is the actual musical signatures of this particular album. Uh, Frank Ocean is, it's not a dance album. In fact, there, we've all been remarking that there's almost no drums anywhere to be found in a lot of these cuts. Um, but there is a real sort of interesting experimentation. And he, you know, obviously has been schooled and has schooled himself uh, by the work of terrific uh, artists like Marvin Gaye, who's preceded him. But it was, it was noted, I guess he leaked out the fact that he was binging on the Beatles and the Beach Boys uh, for a long time. There's even a shout out to Burt Bacharach. There's a version, there's a song called Close to You, which actually uses the, the melody of the Carpenter's song, the Bacharach song, Close to You. Um, he seems 
really eager and very hungry to assimilate a lot of different kinds of musical styles. Even that last cut we played with the sort of clarinet light, like sounds welling and burbling up. What did you think of this musically? You know, I, I, lo I like his aesthetic, that he's um, doing away with labels personally and musically. Uh, so I like the uh, different kinds of soundscapes he creates. I like the fact that there's spoken word, that there's a children's choir, that there's all kinds of synthesizer, uh, that sometimes it sounds like he's whispering, sometimes you can't quite hear it. I, in general, I like that aesthetic. On the other hand, if you're gonna compare yourself to what's going on, I want more. And then I think, well, He's, he's in his 20s, he spent a long time writing for Justin Bieber and others, and now he's coming into his own, and he is gonna give us more, I, I do trust that. It's such a mean, I think he like wrote one song for Justin Bieber, but like everybody's gonna bring that up for the rest of his life. You know, you know he wrote for Justin Bieber at Who else point. did he write for? Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, there were a bunch of other yeah. mainstream artists. Yeah. I mean, it's not an unfair thing to say, I'm just yeah. amused. Uh, it's it's like something you never lived down, right? You know, I mean, you, you wrote a song for Justin Bieber. I think, I think one of the fascinating things about him, really, though, is going back to this poetry angle, is that his connection is, uh, is veering in this direction of being a more direct connection with fans, with people who, who find their way. Like, right now, it involves all of these subscription services, you know, whether you have this one or you don't have this one. But I think the direction of uh, digital uh, dissemination will be much more direct in the future. And so I think that it allows him to have that more sort of, I, I don't know, when I read a poem, for example, especially I enjoy reading a poem that I haven't read anything about before and sort of have that sense of feeling. I felt that about this music, that Frank Ocean was really sort of sharing something that involved this discovery, this personal relationship with your own life and how this relates to what he's producing as his art. And so it's a very different thing. And the, the, the nature of something like uh, what's going on, for example, essentially um, is something that at the time, songs would be something that everybody heard because it would be a mass movement at the time. It would be, the charts meant something then that everybody was listening to the music and it was coming out from a certain source. It was an identifiable sort of artistic source. And that has gone now, that, that, that whole sort of world of, of, of the, that sort of control. And the issue of him, uh, for instance, uh, it, it producing this cat and mouse game of not being clear about where it was going to come out. It, that's part of that. And it's part of creating that very personal relationship, I think, which is to me, um, and I, I actually would say that Beyonce is doing a similar thing, except in a much more sort of like spectacular way. But she's doing it because she's very powerful because she controls a lot of money. And I mean, people dare not face her down if she does something like Lemonade. Right. This is something she's going to do. This is part of who she is as a, 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 a woman who's had the experiences she's had. I want to play just a little bit more from this album, and then I, w I want to follow up on what, uh, with Mercy on what you just said. So uh, this is a, a little section <coughs> called White Ferrari. I, I feel like there's, yeah, first of all, Frank Ocean's really interested in cars, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of songs about cars. Uh, and, uh, but also, I think there's a little bit of Prince in this song, a little bit of little red Corvette here in White Ferrari. White Ferrari Stick of violence 
The people in Ivory here are going, well, finally a tune we recognize. Uh, so that obviously he does very, quote, um, heavily from, uh, from the Beatles here, there, and everywhere in this. But see, to me, Mercy, the difference between Beyonce and Frank Ocean is Frank Ocean also belongs to a certain lineage um, uh, that goes way, way back of music that people especially liked if they themselves felt deeply misunderstood and alienated. Uh, and, you know, when I reported to college, you know, there's, well, there's inevitably, and I, don't, I hate to make a person into a cliche, the girl who wore all black and she owned all of Laura Nero's records, you know, and she'd been in psychotherapy since she was 12 years old, you know, and, and, so, and, and there are artists who sort of say, do you feel left out? Do you feel excluded? Do you feel depressed a lot of the time? You know, I'm with you. This is your music. Listen to this. Go off in a corner. This is like go off in a corner and listen to music. This isn't, for the most part, music you're going to, like, put on at a party. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely not jam session music at all. Yeah. Um, and for everyone here at Iverton, uh, that's how the entire album sounds. <laughs> there's no drums. There's no jam session to this at all. And to your point, the way I compare Beyonce to Frank Ocean, uh, it's, it's the comparison of Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders, right? <laughs> uh, Frank Ocean is an artist's artist, or you're the hipster's artist, right? It's, it's, he's the individual that reaches out to, like you said, the misunderstood, um, marginalized group and says, this might be the music for you. And I think in a lot of ways, and to touch on something that Kate said earlier, in a lot of ways, he's uh, betraying the idea of labels in every kind of way. So mm -hmm. to millennials, or um, I don't know what the generation after millennials is, but to millennials or younger, uh, if you say to them, what box do you belong in? There's this sudden sense of anxiety. I don't know what box I belong in. I think that in many ways is how Frank Ocean put together this album. I don't know what box I belong in. If you don't know what box you belong in either, subscribe to Apple Music and, <laughs> and download my album. That's how I feel. And I mean- you're, you're way too popular to enjoy this album properly, I think. You're, you're more, that's why you like <laughs> Beyonce better. You don't understand what it's like to be an outcast. Some of us on stage I'm understand. trying so hard. I'm trying so hard to relate. You're not going to be able to do it. It's just you don't have that in your DNA, you know? Thank uh, you for noticing, God. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, Kate, I'm not wrong about, I mean, I might be wrong about Mercy, but I'm not wrong about Frank Ocean, right? This is, he's the Sylvia Plath of, uh, of hip-hop R&B. I mean, he's the guy who's sort of saying, you feel kind of crummy? Well, that's okay. That could be kind of beautiful that you feel crummy. Well, you know, the, the, what I really like about it, what I think is really important about it is that he's gotten his artistic freedom and Frank Ocean is talking about 
what he's gone through, what he's observed other young people going through, and other young people and others can relate to that. And it's not gangster. It's not misogynistic. It's not anti-gay. Patriarchal. It's, it's not. And, um, you know, there's a debate among people in the African-American community about whether or not gangster rap and the violence and misogyny grew out of the community or whether it's been, that image has been imposed on the community by the record industry. And I think Frank Ocean is a great example of what an artist with freedom would, could, does, write about, sing about, care about. All right, I'm getting those uh, stick-breaking things that they do over there when it's time to take a break. So it's time to take a break. We'll, we'll do that. We'll go out, I think, with a little piece uh, from the uh, cut solo on the Frank Ocean new release, which is called Blonde, and we'll be back. back. We're in the beautiful Ivoryton Playhouse in beautiful Ivoryton. Give yourselves a hand, big audience here in Ivoryton. Uh, we're actually sitting sort of on the set for the production of Rent, which ends at the end of this weekend. Uh, it features, uh, yeah, yeah, somebody just, that was, a, that was the definition of a smattering of applause. But, um, <laughs> and I encourage you to come see it also because Colin Howard, a young man whom I had the privilege to to help cast in his first professional engagement here at the Ivoryton Playhouse is now here in Rent, so that's very exciting. Uh, he's a very talented young man, too, so come see Colin. Uh, all right, so we're going to switch gears here. Uh, the um, repurposed title, Birth of a Nation, stolen from uh, the D.W. Griffith 1915 film, uh, is the um, what was going to be kind of the real true uh, artistic arrival uh, of a young man named Nate Parker, uh, who was the writer, director, and star uh, of this new version of Birth of a Nation. It's about the uh, Nat Turner slave uprising of the 19th century. Um, it went to Sundance. It's it sold at Sundance for the highest amount a film has ever been sold for uh, out of Sundance. Um, it had a tremendous word of mouth. It was steaming towards the Oscars and various other kinds of awards and prominence. Uh, as it got ready for its re release later this year. And then suddenly, people started talking about something else. They started talking about this young auteur, Nate uh, Parker, having had an incident 17 years ago uh, where there was uh, an accusation at Penn State where he was a student and a wrestler, uh, an accusation of rape involving him uh, and his roommate, uh, a young man named Jean Celestin, who I believe shares a credit actually on this movie. Uh, and the victim, uh, who said she couldn't remember anything, um, later committed suicide. Uh, Parker was actually uh, exonerated. Uh, he was found not guilty in court. Uh, his roommate, Jean Celestin, uh, didn't do quite as well. Initially faced a sentence. I think it was eventually overturned on appeal. 
Uh, but all of this, this 17-year-old story has come bubbling back up to haunt uh, uh, Parker, partly because uh, of just the, his, his role suddenly as a real voice uh, for the place of black artists in the American film industry, uh, partly because there's a, a brutal gang rape scene in this movie, uh, and partly because maybe he didn't handle this all that well once it started to get talked about. So, um, James, you, you know the film industry so well, and I've done my best uh, to sketch out what the stakes were here, but this was a film that kind of was arriving with everything that a film needed right now, particularly on the heels of a lot of criticism about black artists not getting a chance to tell black stories in the film industry. Exactly. Um, uh, after all of the furor at the Oscars last year, about the lack of representation um, of black artists, um, this was something that was almost like a, a, a almost like a Hollywood script in a way that here was a chance for somebody with real talent uh, who could tell a story which was an important one to tell, and it actually touches on something that's a sort of horrible. Um, stain on Hollywood in a way that is also a f sort of weird fascination, which is the original birth of a nation um, and its connection with the Ku Klux Klan and the, the, uh, everything around it. And it's something that not many people know more than the title because of the film doesn't get shown. Uh, for obvious reasons, it doesn't get shown very much except in film classes. Um, and in this particular case, um, taking that title sort of heightened the profile of the film to begin with. Um, and it's also another important thing, absolutely vital thing, is that it's high time the story of Nat Turner was really told. Um, again, this is something that Hollywood has had no interest in doing before. So all of this had this amazing buildup. And uh, certainly Fox Searchlight, which picked up the film, they put up a lot of money for it and the expectations were very, very high. They are claiming that they're not going to change anything about the publicity campaign for the film, but um, everybody is absolutely you know, on pins and needles in Hollywood now about what's going to happen with this because it really uh, brings up a lot of things that are really complicated, the layer upon layer of complexity. One, of course, is uh, how Nate Parker has been dealing with this. And he, his, um, uh, what he's said so far in response to this has, has really been about him and how he's handled it, not so much about the, um, the, the young woman who committed suicide. And so um, there's a, a yet another layer here where Hollywood people, the mainstream Hollywood people, if you like, the interviewers, the publicists, they are uh, normally would be managing this, but they don't want to be seen to be managing this because it's this new territory where there's an important story being told, the racial history of Hollywood, so nobody wants to touch it. So it's incredibly complicated from that point of view. And um, it's also something that, uh, you know, right in the background of, of it, of course, is the money. There's a lot of money writing on this. A lot of people have, have had big expectations of it. and. There's also one other sort of layer, if you will. Um, Hollywood's treatment of people who've been in, had issues in their past, uh, Brian Singer comes to mind, for example, the director of X-Men, who uh, had his own sexual scandals in his past, and he also makes a huge amount of money for the studios. And so, in a way, he's gotten away with that kind of behavior. So. Here you are dealing with something. Now what's going to happen with Nate Parker, um, which uh, is, uh, I mean, the, the complexity, as I say, is huge. And nobody really knows. The, the only thing that is certain is that, Holly, that, that 
uh, Fox Searchlight has announced a, an opening, and that's going to happen. The question is, will people go to see it? They, that's, it, it? How will they react to the film, and what will the conversation be? You know, Kate, as I've watched this play out in, in public, uh, uh, public opinion forums, I was listening to um, even the podcast of Code Switch, uh, which is uh, NPR's uh, special podcast with Gene Denby for looking at questions exactly like this. I kind of was thinking that I'd hear more of sort of the second thing that James was laying out, which is that, you know, the Roman Polanskis and the Woody Allens and the Brian Singers, they're not held to this standard. This really is, you know, people dig digging up a 17-year-old charge. Uh, the guy was actually found innocent. You know, what's this all about? And I'm hearing something different. Uh, in, in New York Magazine, same kind of thing. Uh, in each case, the, the, uh, the Code Switch podcast and then in New York Magazine, young African-American uh, people working in the film industry uh, and journalists uh, are saying, you know, I'm not even sure I'm going to see this movie. Like, I'm not even comfortable giving it money, um, which really surprised me. I, I'm surprised, uh, maybe just that 2016 is a different time than some of these other times. Yeah, I, I did some reading in um, Ebony Magazine and um, on Roland Martin's report and one of the questions that was raised by some of the writers, actually a writer who knew both Nate Parker and uh, the young woman at Penn State, uh, asked the question of the media, why him, why now? Uh, so there, there's that part of, of the story. Um, uh, there's that question that the story raises. I read The Daily Beast, and uh, I didn't know about this uh, ahead of time. I, I read The Daily Beast and uh, it's really a terrible, awful story. Uh, but I still have the question, why him and why now? Especially when I think about somebody like um, a Jameis Winston, mm -hmm. the athlete who won the Heisman Trophy, was the number one draft pick, is playing for the Tampa Buccaneers and Florida State University. Uh, paid his accuser almost a million dollars. And so I said, what's the difference? Who decides? Well, is, um, one, is one difference that, that, you know, Nate Parker is at least sort of saying, first of all, he has very explicitly positioned himself before this whole storm broke out as I'm going to be one of the kind of leading change agents in this industry. I'm going to be an auteur, you know, who, who acquaints mainstream audiences with a black artistic vision in a way that hasn't been happening so far. I mean, Jameis Winston doesn't really promise to do anything except run really fast and not get tackled too much. So, I mean, maybe this guy, the, the, the integrity of who this guy is, is maybe held to a higher standard just because he's an artist. You ultimately, ultimately have to believe in his vision. You only have to believe, in, I mean, ideally, Jameis Winston would be a better person and our football players would be, on balance, better people. But it, maybe it's not as essential. But, you know, going back to your original question, I think the, the difference, there is a difference, I think, among younger generations of African-American writers and professors and uh, lawyers and journalists, um, where people aren't as willing to, um, to use an expression, uh, protect the race at the expense of women. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. And, and Mercy, another thing that's different about, about you young folks uh, <laughs> is that you assemble your own pictures of things without necessarily waiting 
for the mainstream media to tell you a specific story a specific way. It's probably harder for the publicists, you know, and the industry people that James was talking about to spin something because, you know, all this stuff is available. You can get on Twitter and, and Facebook and find, there are things like transcripts of phone calls that James Parker made to this woman yep. trying to get her to see the story and to believe the story his way. But in those transcripts, you really see, you see that she clearly, there were, there were moments in this encounter where she didn't even understand that there was another person in the room possibly preparing to have sex with her. And, and you know, when, you, when people can circulate things like that and discuss it that way, I think that's another thing that makes it a slightly different thinking process than the one Kate's describing with an earlier generation. Sure. I mean, I just want to start by saying that uh, I, I sort of live my life by this phrase of I don't want your cultural inclusionism if, if, if it's not feminist, and I don't want your feminism if it's not intersectional, right? And hmm. Nate Parker, the issue with Nate Parker is that you're right, he sort of positioned himself to be this, uh, this light of change, right? This agent of change who was going to come into Hollywood and tell the much needed story of Nat Turner. And we were all very excited about it. I think, especially millennials, I speak on behalf of millennials. <laughs> we were all very excited to see this movie that took on this very, um, I guess I'll say, uh, sensitive name and sort of turned it around and sort of made it its own. Um, and for this story to have come out, I go back to what I said before. I can't be a part of your change system if it's not feminist. And um, you're right that uh, millennials aren't for spin, that there's just entirely too much information at the touch of an iPad or an iPhone or what have you, right? That the only spin that should be had is one which you're saying sorry, and that's not spin, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of restorative justice, making amends um, with the community that you harmed um, prior to going forward and pushing your initial message. And I think that's what the issue here is with Nate Parker. Um, another interesting nuance of this is one of the executive directors is uh, Gabrielle Union, who herself is a victim of mm -hmm. sexual assault. And something that I'm waiting uh, for to come out is what her interaction with this whole thing is, because mm -hmm. she's been very vocal about women's rights and feminist issues. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing what that dynamic will end up being. Um, but very hard. She's got a lot of skin in the game, so right. to speak. I mean, Absolutely. it's very hard, I, I think, for her to turn her back. You know, we're going to run out of time here. I could talk about this for an hour easily. I think it's it, that interesting. But I want to hear from all three of you. I, I, I was surprised by the number of people saying, you know, I may not go see this movie. I just can't hand any money over to Nate Parker or whatever. And to me, boy, that just never crossed my mind. Like, I, I really want to see this movie, and then I'll decide you know, how, how much of this is Nate Parker, how much of it is the work of other artists, how much of the Nat Turner story that needs to be told, as James said, is being told finally. You know, I mean, I, I'd rather make my own decision having seen this movie and then thought a little bit more about who this young man is, but just not going, I don't know. I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that you, the, the, one of the most difficult things always in film, but in particularly the Hollywood uh, uh, universe is that um, you have to separate ego from art in some way. And one of the problems, I think, is that in this case is that ego has taken over in a, a number of ways. First of all, like taking on Hollywood directly by the horns, if you like, 
birth of a nation, but also telling an extremely important neglected story, but then getting it tied up with your own ego in the way that you respond to that. And um, I think other people have other things to say about this film, but if you, I do think it's important to actually see it, to see the art and, and to make a judgment on it. Um, you can say, well, if everybody does that, then this guy makes a lot of money and then everybody says, oh, well, it was okay, don't worry. Um, there is that aspect of it that bothers me that um, it, it, some people will spin it that way. Mm -hmm. Certainly 20th Century Fox will. Um, they will quietly hire Hill and Knowlton and, <laughs> and have their consultants at work. I don't mean to cut you off, but we're almost out of time in this segment. I'd like to get at least a sentence each from Mercy and uh, Kate. I mean, Mercy, will you go see this movie? Uh, I'm so conflicted. Um, I understand that the story needs to be told and that people need to see the story, but um, I can't separate the artist from the art in the same way that I can't separate my identity from my being a woman, and so mm -hmm. I can't buy into, or I don't know if I can buy into the story or the mm -hmm. movie, um, quite, mm -hmm. quite literally. I don't know if I can buy into it. Mm -hmm. What about you, Kate? I will probably go to see it, because I think it's good for everybody to see, to know what's there. But what I hope comes out of this tragic situation for this young woman is a change in the conversation around um, uh, rape, mm -hmm. campus rape. And I hope that, um, you know, Nate, ironically, Nate Parker is scheduled to visit campuses and talk about uh, the history of enslavement in this country. And I hope people start making the connection between using someone's body mm. Uh, based on their color and the connections between using someone's body um, based on on their uh, sex or their gender. All right, we've got to take a break here. We'll come back. We'll do some very quick recommendations after this. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, with help from me, Kyone Wolf, Betsy Kaplan, Gina Matruda, and Katie Talarski. The part of Bill Curry was played by Marvin Gaye. Check out our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and we've got a new Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. On Monday's show, climate change and Trump reveal on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. All right, we're back here at the beautiful Ivoryton Playhouse in beautiful Ivoryton. Audience, you've been so wonderful. And... Uh, this isn't really part of the formal endorsement process, but you know, all up and down the Connecticut River, all up and down Route 9, there's just these beautiful places like the Ivoryton Playhouse. We did a show at the Terrace Theater, theater over in Chester. Uh, there's the Good Speed. I was at the Kate down in Old Saybrook uh, for the Solace concert on Tuesday night. Uh, the summer is waning, but all of these places are wonderful, and I hope the listeners take advantage of them. Uh, we're going to do some endorsements here. James, what have you got? Um, well, apropos of what we've been talking about, about um, the birth of a nation, I, I've been reading some essays by the writer Teju Cole, uh, which I would highly recommend. Uh, really insightful, really amazing writer. Um, and the other thing I would uh, recommend, we're just opening a, an incredible restoration of Howard's End, um, mm. the um, uh, Merchant Ivory production of some years ago that was beautifully filmed and has not been available in a good form. Uh, we're playing it for a week at Sydney Studio in Hartford uh, from uh, today uh, through next Thursday. Oh, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to be in Maine. It's a great film, though. Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, yes. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right. incredible performances and magnificent. Uh, the production is the, the, absolutely the peak of 
Merchant Ivory. All right, go see that. Go see it on that screen without equipment, without sound equipment. You'll get the actual realization of the vision. Go ahead, Mercy. Okay, so I have three. Uh, on Netflix, if you guys want to um, waste a complete night, uh, Stranger Things is <laughs> weird. It's a very weird uh, TV show, um, and I loved it, so I think you will too. Then I also have Loving, the movie that's coming out pretty soon, which is a story about... Um, loving versus Virginia, uh, an interracial couple beating the odds, um, and uh, Hidden Figures, which is a movie with three phenomenal actresses. Um, which is uh, the storyline is about three black, the first three black women. It's actually based on engineers yeah. from NASA. NASA. Yeah, right. we did a show kind of yeah. about this, about the mathematicians yeah. who work for the Jet yeah. Propulsion right. Laboratory. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Kate. All right, I've got uh, Vanessa German whose show is ending at the Wadsworth on um, September 4th. It's called I Come to Do a Violence to the Lie. She's a young black woman artist from Pittsburgh, and it doesn't do it justice to say she, she makes sculptures of female black women power figures from various items. That doesn't do it justice. You need to go see it. That's the Wadsworth Athenaeum uh, on Main Street in Hartford. And actually, they have a free uh, happy hour from 4 to 5. Uh, you can go online and find out about that. Also, two movies. One is The Free State of Jones, mm -hmm. starring Matthew McConaughey. It's a story of, uh, I guess you call them uh, Southern uni Unionists who join with, with um, emancipated African Americans to fight against the uh, Confederacy. It's fascinating. There's also a book that it's based upon by the professor of uh, Victoria Bynum. That's the Free State of Jones. And last but not least, you're not going to believe this, Colin, but I really was pleasantly surprised by uh, the Meryl Streep uh, biopic of uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. This is the wealthy woman who really couldn't sing at all, but nobody would tell her, and she attempted to have an opera singing career. Yeah. Well, you are in, in a little bit the minority on that, but, uh, but you're it's brave. It's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. It's, a it's bittersweet. Number. All right, we have to stop now. I will just quickly say that if you want to see Nate Palmer in a really nice performance, uh, Nate Parker, excuse me, in a really nice performance before he got in all this trouble, um, Beyond the Lights uh, is a really nice movie about uh, a singer uh, and her bodyguard. We've got to go now. Thanks to everybody who helped out here, particularly my great team, Katie Tilarski, Jonathan McPants, and Betsy Kaplan here. Thank you, Ivoryton Theater. No, Jude, don't do a standing ovation. They, oh, I don't your... want your standing ovation. <laughs> I don't a want standing it. Ovation. <laughs>